So we are continuing to go through our class in Covenant Theology. And the name of our class is... This is pretty easy, guys. That's right. Thank you. The Q would be the big, gigantic screen. Okay. And why are we calling it God has a plan for every part of your life? Other than He does. Thank you. Why? What have we been doing? We've been not only studying the covenant, but we've been applying it, right? First, we looked at um, the covenant and marriage. Then we looked at the covenant and family. And now we're going to look at the covenant and work. And so... What I want you to understand is, if as we go through the Scriptures, if we see that God relates covenantally to us, we have to understand that it is a relationship, and that relationship is not confined. Right? How many of you would like it if your marriage was such that your spouse considered that the only thing that was important with marriage was when you were in the living room together? Right? No. How many of you wanted your kids only to be your kids and obey you only between the hours of 12 and 6? No. Well, a starting point. Okay, it's a starting point. But you see, these, these implications, they, they go out in all of our life. And that's why we're starting to think about, okay, the family begins with marriage, and then we talked about the family, and now we're moving out in our public sphere in work, and then we're going to begin looking at the church and evangelism and various aspects, again, with an outward focus. So, I'll give you a pet peeve. Maybe some of you have this pet peeve with me. Covenant and covenant theology is real big in reform circles, right? But sometimes I wonder about that. Sometimes I wonder if we're so focused on the covenant so that we can wake up in our covenant homes and leave our covenant families and pour our covenant coffee into our covenant thermoses and get into our covenant cars and drive in the covenant lanes to our covenant job where we get covenant lunch. And we just try and make everything a ghettoizing. When if what's true is, is that God relates to His people by means of a covenant... And if in the Scriptures we are called to go out and be ambassadors to bring all of the family together, then we must bring the covenant out. We have to let people know. Right? And you'll also see that that's a real problem with modern evangelicalism. Because for modern evangelicalism, the sum of our ambassadorship is memorized in three verses, getting somebody to pray a prayer and sign a sheet. And then we say, good luck. That's not how we do that. We need to let people know that it's about being right with God, but it's also being a part of His family. And that means you're not only a child of God, but you have brothers and sisters. And then you have obligations and responsibilities. Because one of the things you have to do right away is you have to multiply yourself. Once you hear the gospel, then you become an ambassador, and then you have to take it, etc. And so we need to think about the covenant that way. Does that make sense? Nod your heads, at least pretend you're listening to senior pastor. Okay, good. All right, so we're going to look now, week nine, at the covenant and work. So, it's 3 a.m., 
What are the elements of a covenant, people? You guys are good. These are the elements of a covenant. And we looked at the covenant of grace. Who are the parties in the covenant of grace? God in Christ. What is the condition? Come on, say it with some vigor. Faith in Christ. What is the promise? Eternal life and God will be our God and we will have forgiveness of sins. And what is the penalty? Why? God always fulfills. That's exactly right, Steve. There is no penalty because God always fulfills. All right. Someone says to you, well, condition, that doesn't make sense to me. I thought God unconditionally loved us. This covenant theology must be unbiblical. Is the covenant conditional or unconditional? Yes. That's why I like to say yes. Now, that sounds kind of humorous, but is yes easy to remember? Is it easier than, for example, memorizing three chapters of Romans? You could take yes to your workplace. You could take yes to your neighborhoods. You could take yes to your kids and explain to them that the covenant is unconditional, but it is also conditional. You need to be responsible, but it's not all on you. Why? How is it? What's our phrase? This is when you save for Starbucks. When somebody's there and they're trying to be all... Synergy. That's what you do when you're ordering a latte. And you're sitting there and they're like, well, you know, I think that the uh, Aristotelian method is much better than the Platonic method. I don't know. Or maybe I'm a Nietzscheist. You say, well, listen, you need to study asymmetrical synergism. (laughs) What? Now... I'm only being half facetious because if you say that to somebody, they're going to go, what are you talking about? Right? And you, Then you got to explain it. How do you explain it? You explain it this way. There is a condition. God provides for the condition. And then we act. What's an example of that, folks? Faith. Whose faith is it? Ours. Who has to believe? We do. How can we believe? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. God gives us the faith. He gives us life and gives us the faith. Asymmetrical synergism. I like that. Any questions so far? You're doing good with the review. Remember, there is a central theme in all of the Bible. It's God's purpose in history, the covenant of grace, and all of, all of history revolves around that. Yeah, because I could only fit four in that graph. Yeah. That, that's, that's really the answer. Because I could also put the Davidic covenant there too. Um, and so I just tried to cover the major majors. Alright. Review. Covenantal marriage. We looked at this two weeks ago. Remember that marriage is an illustration. It is an illustration of what? Okay. That's good. Karen, I think you should give him two pieces of dessert tonight. 
I like that. What is it a picture of? God's covenant with His people and Christ's covenant with His church. Now, you have to remember that people long ago were a lot like people like us. You know, I get one of these things all the time. You don't understand the modern age, Fred. People don't read. Everything's MTV. Well, MTV doesn't even have videos anymore, do they? I'm showing my age. Uh, everything is visual. Everything is YouTube. Is that better? YouTube's still out there, right? Okay. Everything is visual. We don't have time for all of this word stuff. How do we, you know, we're so different than other people before. How do you possibly explain biblical concepts? And I asked two questions to answer that. How many people do you think as a percentage in America today are literate? That is, could read on a middle school to high school level. What do you think? Guess. 87? My guess is it's in the 90s. How many people do you think could read on a middle school level in the days of the New Testament? As a percentage. One or two percent. That's it. Nobody could read. Well, if the Word was the main way of communicating God's truth in an age in which nobody could read, the Word is sufficient now. But... God gives us built-in illustration and story in the Word to help us understand the concepts. Again, all of us can understand on some level marriage, even if we're not married, right? And then when we get married, then we really start to understand marriage, right? It starts to really, you know, Fred and Rachel thought they knew what marriage was. Now they still think they do. You know, they haven't even they haven't had kids yet, right? And then you get somebody, you know, like me. I think I know what marriage is because I got teenagers, and some of y'all back there sitting and laughing and say, "Yeah, right. Just wait, just wait, right?" So, I mean, but on some level, we start to understand this. It's a visual picture and an image of the way God relates to His people, specifically Christ with His church. And these were the verses we looked at: Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 3, Hosea 2, Ephesians 5, and 1 Corinthians 11. Because marriage is an illustration, it is also covenantal. It is incorporated into God's law. You remember we said, you shall not commit adultery. That is one of the Ten Commandments. It's a pretty big deal. And our Lord repeats it in Mark, and Paul repeats it essentially in Ephesians. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. Everybody with me so far on that? That's two-week review. Now, last-week review. Covenantal families. You remember we said that God's model for blessing is the family because He adopts us as sons, right? We become children of God according to Ephesians 1, the purpose of His will. And if you think about it, Galatians 4 tells us that the entire purpose of Jesus Christ coming is so that we could be a part of the family of God. Think about that. This is really important stuff. We talked about the general duties that are involved in a family. That there is headship in the Father. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that is our Heavenly Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And do you remember what the Greek word is there for family? 
Who remembers? Come on. Now I'm going to say it, and then you have to remember next week. It is the word for fatherness. Fatherhood. So it's not just that the family is on divine directive. Fatherness is on a divine directive. And we need to stop thinking about our lives as if God somehow takes what we invented and uses it as an example for us. That's not how it works. We have fathers because God is a father. He is the original father. He is the perfect father. And so when we have bad fathers or we are bad fathers, we're just badly reflecting the truth. Right? So we don't judge God by our parenting skills. Right? This is important. The father also has a duty to raise children, we saw in Deuteronomy 6. And you remember, where does that happen? What? Everywhere. Where you're walking, where you're sitting, when you're eating, when you're sleeping, when you're getting up, when you're going over place. Everywhere. This is also critically important. We are to tell stories of God's faithfulness. Let me challenge you dads. How many of your kids, if I took them right now to my office, could rattle off for me the top five ways in which God has been faithful in your life? My guess is He has been. My guess is you know it. My guess is you're thankful for it. All good things. But my guess is you also forget to tell them. That's how it gets passed from generation to generation. It's not optional. It's a must. How can we fall down on the job? You remember we had some biblical examples. First, we could be a bad influence. You remember Ahab? How did Ahab's son turn out? Not so good. That's not a shocker, is it? But Ahab is your dad and Jezebel is your mother. You don't... That's not a shocker. Okay? We can also be indulgent, allowing disobedience. This happened with Eli and with Samuel. And remember we saw that chain, right? Eli was indulgent. Who was Eli's mentor? Samuel. Samuel was indulgent. Who did Samuel mentor? David. What was David? Indulgent. This is important. And then lastly, showing partiality. Right? This is, this is difficult. And this goes beyond, moms, the month before Christmas making sure that all of your kids get nearly the same amount in dollars and in boxes for gifts. Now, now that's good. I, I don't want you to get one kid one and one kid thirty. But it goes way beyond that, right? We can't show partiality in the home. And so the family shows us that it is a covenantal environment through blessing and cursing. It, it brings, if we are faithful, it brings the blessing of faithfulness, of covenant relationships, and of unity in the home. And when we don't have this, what do we have? We have adultery, we have divorce, we have polygamy. We have all sorts of bad things. And then we as Christians step back and we say, society is a mess. Look at what they got on TV. Look at these movies. Look at these books, right? You all say that, right? I know you do. I do. Do you wonder why we have all of this? 
Well, because in the 80s, 70s, 60s, and 50s, we witnessed the breakdown of the family. And surprise, what's our element? Number four, cursing. That's what we see. Because remember, this kind of covenantal expression is personal, it is family, and it is broader and public. You can't confine it to one area. All right, let's talk now about work. First of all, we have to understand that work is critically important. The first thing we need to think about is, is that there is a distinct link to evangelism in work. Paul says this. Actually, see this? I got this out of order. Let me go back here. I'll come back to that. Does God care if I work? Yeah. How many of you get up Monday morning and go, yippee, I can go to work? Right? Even those of you that do, there's weeks where you go, oh, man. You wonder, you know, you wonder if life had a snooze button, right? Not just the clock. If whole life, you could put it on snooze. Well, God does care if we work. He designed us for work. The Lord God took the man, who's the man? And put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? And to keep it. Now, one of my favorite things to say when I'm teaching is, this is not rocket science. I'm going to ask you a real simple question that's enlightening. When did God put Adam in the garden to work it? Before the fall. What happened during the fall and after the fall? Well, sin, right? So when God put Adam in the garden to work, was work sin? Was work a punishment for sin? How do we know that? There was no sin. QED. Right? I have proven the case. Right? You cannot look at your work as something sinful and horrible to be avoided. It's a part of God's plan for sinless man. I hate to break this to you. Y'all are going to work in glory. I don't know what it will look like. I know we won't get tired like we do. We won't get old. We won't have bunions. We won't have sore shoulders. But I can tell you, there will be work in glory because it is a part of God's plan. Okay? We won't have the cursed effect on work. So God cares if we work. That's where we start. God also designed us for work. Now, the fourth commandment says, Six days you shall labor and do all the work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. When I say fourth commandment to you, what do you think? Honoring the Lord's Day, right? I have a really good friend, and he's uh, he likes to be a little bit uh, cheeky. So he will be in a presbytery meeting, and he will look and ask the candidate. And he'll say, all right. Tell me how you could break the fourth commandment on Tuesday. And they go. He says, you don't work. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, six days. Now, that's hard for us to picture. What's our work week, typically? Five. 
right? We work five. And then we complain we only got two days off. And then we get bitter because God wants one of those two days off we got. Yes? Well, yes, with works of mercy and necessity, yes. That's right. But it is a, it is a circumscribed kind of a work. Because we do, because what the commandment says here is this. Not only are we to work and to work hard, but we are to rest. It's not good to work the seventh day like you work the other six. It's not. Your body's not made that way. It will wear out. Your body's also not made to work two and a half days a week. It's not what God did. And this is an evangelism opportunity, isn't it? What's one of the biggest problems in America today? How many people don't hold down a job? How many people live till they're 35 in their mother's basement and don't hold the job? God designed us to work. It's good. It's your self-worth, right? So just even talking about work can be in an aspect of evangelism because this is what God has designed us for. God cares if we work because work glorifies God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or what? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Can you staple papers to the glory of God? Why? Is it a whatever you do? Can you change diapers to the glory of God? Why? Whatever you do. Right? Can you prepare TPS reports to the glory of God? Yes, because it's whatever you do. So we need to think about this. If we are in a relationship covenantally with God, if we are bound with Him, if God is not someone who's far off and distant that we come once a week for an hour to get an audience with and then leave behind, God is in our workplaces. That means we, the workplaces where we get in the car, we go drive through traffic. That means, ladies, some of y'all, your commute is shorter, right? Some of y'all, your commute is take your feet off the bed and it hits the floor and then you're at work, right? That is glorifying to God. Brief aside. That means do not listen to anybody for a moment when they say to you, oh, what? Are you just a mom? Are you just a homekeeper? Why don't you work? Now, I realize y'all laugh and say you have no idea how much work I do. I understand that part. But the point is, regardless of whether you had a 15-hour day or a 12-hour day or an 8-hour day at home, it is something you can do to the glory of God. And therefore, it is critical and important and a part of the relationship that you have with your God. Work is covenantal. We're fulfilling God's will in us. Paul puts it this way. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work for his own hands. So Why? Why? Now, think about this. Do we say that in America? What do we say in America? Hey, deadbeat, get off the food stamps. Pull up your straps. 
Put on your shoes. Carry your weight. Pay your taxes. Do what you're doing so you're not on my dime. Right? Is that true? So far as it goes. That's not what God's interested in. God's not interested in you just doing your part to meet a requirement. You are to work and to work hard, not so that you have enough, but so that you have extra so you can be generous and share. That's a part of the structure of God's universe. Right? Now, when we start to think about work that way, then it becomes it becomes different. Then when we're going out to fly out for a business meeting and we get delayed, we sit and we think to ourselves, well, I really don't want to be sitting in this airport. I really would rather be home. But, you know, doing this provides for my family. It allows me to support some orphans in Africa. It allows me to give to the church. allows me to help my nephew. allows me to do this for my kids. takes on a little bit of a different meaning, right? More of a whole life meaning. Well, the, the word there is it's contrasting with, the, yes, what's the honest work? It's a contrast with a thief. Because the funny thing is, thieves work. They do. One of my favorite stories is, I had a guy call me up, got the number of the church, uh, of my cell phone off the website. This was years ago. Told me he was a trucker and his truck was broke down and somebody had to come get it and he was late here and he wanted to come to church and he needed help getting to a motel and he knew that uh, who our clerk of session was and he knew the difference between the PCA and the PCUSA and the EPC and he knew all of this and all of the other things. All, all we do is help him. I brought him to the motel and a woman comes out of the office screaming, Get him out of here! I guess he'd messed up the hotel room. Found out he'd been there the night before. The Lutherans had put him up the night before. And he knew all the difference between all the various strains of Lutheranism. And I said to myself, if you put a tenth of the energy you did into stealing, you could work. Think about the way people scam. Somewhere, put it this way, somebody is spending time to think about how best to get you to give money to Nigeria. And they're trying to comb through email lists to get it into your inbox. It's work. But it's not honest work. It's not productive work. Right? God calls us to that. Arnaldo. Uh, hey, the, uh, there is something that uh, uh, really work that would be a very important tool for evangelization. The way you work. Yes. Not only that you do a good work, if you are honest in your work, they want to fire you eventually. Right. The way you do your work is very important. I saw one person who was a Christian, and he used to work in a very hostile environment. And he was getting the first in the morning, he was there, the last one at night, helping people. Right. Trying to avoid other people to realize he was helping them. And people started to change. But the grace of God, that's right. That's exactly right. And the important thing for us to think about is we take that for granted. Again, if I ask you this, right now, what do you think is easier? To take a good attitude and help others in the way you work this week or for Monday morning, I want you all to memorize the book of Ephesians so that you can share with people. 
Which is an easier task. And yet, we think somehow our work isn't important. Right? It's something that all of us could start doing tomorrow. You got no excuse. You don't need to memorize anything. You don't need to buy anything. You don't need to set up anything. All you have to do is take an attitude that I'm going into this workplace for the glory of God. There's a link to the family. If you did your homework, Colossians 3, you will see that Paul says this in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Sounds like Ephesians 5, doesn't it? Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is all of what we talked about in the family. But then he says, Slaves, do not turn off your ears. Here's a good exercise. Every place like this in the Bible you see the word slaves, substitute the word employees. Because that's really what it is. It's an employer-employee relationship. Okay? Sometimes this would involve compensation. Sometimes it might not. The amount of money you get paid for work does not determine whether it's work or not. Right? Ask any mom. I don't think she fills out um, a W-2. Right? Doesn't mean it's not valuable. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly master, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for whom? The Lord, and not for men. You need to be focused on the Lord. Now, here's my slide I had early too much. So there's a link to evangelism. There's a negative implication to what Arnaldo said. Arnaldo said, when you work hard and you help people and you do it humbly, they will see it and they will change. When you are lazy and you are shiftless and when you try and avoid work and when you dump projects on people and get out of the way, you know what happens? People don't want to be around you. People don't want to hear a Bible. People don't care who your Jesus is. It's hard to think about. But if you want an audience with people, you need to live a life in accordance with the Bible. Paul puts it this way. He says, listen, I'm commanding you. Stay away from the people who are idle. Do not go with them. Because let me tell you, when I was there, we weren't idle. You saw us, didn't you? When I brought the gospel to you, I worked hard. I sweat. I was up late. I helped people. That got me an audience. That lets you know I was real. That lets you know I actually cared about people and I wasn't just on some kind of checklist mission. We labored with toil and labor we worked. The words there are very vivid. This is hard work. This is sweating outside work. This is crazy day at the office when a hundred things are coming at you and the phone's ringing and you're behind on six emails. It's crazy, busy work. And we did this that we might not be what? A burden. 
What's the opposite? Well, if you don't want to be a burden, what's the opposite of being a burden? Having some to share. Right? Isn't that what Paul said? Why we should work? We don't want to be a burden. We should be a burden bearer. That's who we should be. And if we, the church, out in the community, say we have a community of people and we are committed, and we are committed to Jesus, and we are committed to the gospel, and you'll see it in us out there because we are burden bearers. You don't have to worry about us. We'll help. We're showing that God makes a difference. And this is remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. You know, one of my favorite stories to tell to people, both other ministers and church members and people out at large, as a wonderful example of how the community of God comes together and works, is the day after day, after week after week, that this church changed diapers at the Howell's house and fed babies and changed sheets and babysat. Nobody had to get a PhD, right? I don't think you didn't require that, right? Nobody had to memorize even a small book of the Bible, right? They didn't even have to memorize Philemon to come in and and do that, right? And when you say that, people go, what? How long? What was it, a year and a half? Straight? I mean, I know it dribbled on for like three years, but it was like round the clock for like a year and a half. What? Yes. What's your church like? Just an ordinary church. A couple hundred people. Seriously? Why? Well, let me tell you the backstory. Let me tell you why they had five kids. Let me tell you why they denied what everybody was telling them that they shouldn't choose life. Let me tell you about how it changed our people. Let me tell All because some ladies and men went and changed diapers. The way we work affects our standing in the community and before others. And isn't that really what we're all about here? Really? I mean, it really shouldn't be about getting a good 401k. Anybody ever seen anybody take a 401k into the coffin with them? Nope. Anybody ever drive a good car that they bought? In their grave. No. We leave it behind. We are here for a purpose. We are a missionary army. We are here to grow in the Lord so that we can be ambassadors for Jesus Christ and see God get the glory and see His church get built up. In the midst of all of that, don't get me wrong, God will bless us. He, he blesses us with this wonderful building. He blesses us with cars, with food, with friends. None of that's bad. I'm not telling you all to go sell your cars and your houses. But I'm just saying, that's the icing on the cake. Don't mistake that for the cake, or you'll wake up one day and say, what have I lived my life for? Paul said, I'm going to give you an example to imitate. And he's pretty harsh. This would not go over well in America 2014. If anyone's not willing to work, don't let him eat. Why do you think Paul's so harsh? What do you think happens when you don't work and you don't eat? What do you think you figure out? You better get some work because I want to eat. I mean, let's be honest here. Even an idiot like the prodigal son figured that one out in the pig slop. Ooh, you know what? Maybe instead of eating the pig slop, I could go get a job with my dad. Right? 
I mean, this is the sort of thing. And we insulate ourselves and others from the consequences of our choices. Now, that means we need to work extra hard to get this message across. Because people are insulated from the consequences of their choices. But there's, there still is covenantal curses to be found for not following God's model. Because I might not work and be lazy and the government might send me a check. But my kids are going to see me sit on a couch every day and think, that's pretty worthless. He doesn't even get out of his pajamas. He doesn't even try to work. Why am I doing my homework? I shouldn't bother to try and work. Right? There's an effect. You can't get away from the way God has structured the world. Parties, condition, blessings, and what? Cursings. It's the way the world works. Paul Paul says this too, that you know, when you're not working, usually people who don't work tell you how you should work. You know what Paul says they are? Busybodies. Poking their nose in people's business. Get busy on your own work. Don't be worried about what somebody else is doing. You do. This is, again, one of the big problems the church has, generally speaking. We are very, very interested in telling other people how they should do things. I want to hit you right between the eyes on this in advance of next week. We are wonderful at telling people what is wrong with their evangelism. And generally speaking, it's true, because people's evangelism is cockamamie a lot of times. But I think it was D.L. Moody that said, you know, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. And that's the truth. Now, that doesn't mean we should say, oh, well, we should let bygones be bygones, and anyone can evangelize however they want, and let's not be critical. No, what that means is, if evangelism is important, and we want it done right, and we don't want it done wrong, then we better get out and do it. So we show people we're active, we care, we're doing it, and we model that they do it. This is the way we work with people. So here's a challenge for you. Let's take a look at the life of Manasseh in chapter 33 of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 8. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places and his father has, that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherahs and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune-telling, and omens, and sorcery, and dealt with mediums, and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved the image of the idol that he had, that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David, to Solomon his son, In this house, 
And in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them. All the law, all the statutes, and all the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So what, how do we describe Manasseh's life, reign, and his society? Evil. Give me some more good adjectives. Wicked. Perverted. Would you like him to be your king? Would your society be good if it was? As a matter of fact, could you think of somebody worse at this moment, probably? I mean, no, ironically. No. I mean, think about it. This man personally took his own children and put them in the fire. This is about as bad as it gets. He led Judah to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed. So, let me ask a quick question. Is it important not to be like Manasseh? Yes. Yes. It is very important if we're, if, if we're supervising others. That's correct. So, it's important for us not to be like Manasseh, right? Now, take a look at this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is what? Worse than what? Who is Manasseh? Was he good? Was he just sort of bad? Was he really wicked? Did he destroy a society? You don't work, you're worse than him. Let that sink in. You don't provide for your family, you're worse than him. Now, Understand what Paul's saying here. He's not saying somebody who is disabled. He's not saying someone who's trying to find work and can't find work. That's not what he's saying. He's saying people who have made a choice not to support their family are worse than unbelievers. If that is true, how can we possibly think we can be testifying to who Jesus is? We can't. This is important. Let me tell you something else. Do you all get discouraged by the work ethic in America today? You know what that is? That's an unbelievable opportunity. You know, if I set you down in a restaurant and I give you a good sirloin steak and I put next to it a good strip steak and I put next to it a filet mignon and I ask you, which is better? What? Tell me the differences. That's not so easy, right? But if I sit you down in a restaurant and I give you a piece of wood and I give you some compost and I put a strip steak next to it, do you think you can see the difference? The worse the world is, the better the ground for evangelism we have. We don't need protection from the government. We don't need protection from society. We don't need our films on, in Hollywood. We don't need our people in Congress. What we need is an opportunity to bring the gospel. The world that the apostles turned upside down was a complete mess. And because it was a mess, they shone. They were a city on a hill. Okay? So what you can do this week 
This isn't homework. I don't know what you call this. This is kind of like, um, what is Riley on right now? What do they call that? Internship. This is your internship for Sunday school. You go to work today. Tomorrow, excuse me. You go to work tomorrow. I'm at work today. <laughs> I'm already ahead of y'all. I'm at work right now. <clears throat> you go to work tomorrow, and you go with an attitude that says, I'm going to glorify God. And I don't care where, like I said, if your, your work is steps when your feet at the ground, I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to show the difference. <clears throat> I'm going to provide opportunities so that I can be productive, so that I can have something to share with others, so that I will share with others, so I will be engaged with them, and so the gospel will go forward. <clears throat> this is what I want you to do this week. But I still am going to give you homework. Sorry. Next week, we're going to apply this way of covenantal thinking a little bit more theologically to our evangelism. So what I want you to do <coughs> is to look at John 15 and Romans 5. And next week, we're going to talk about how covenantally viewing our relationship with God and having a covenantal view of salvation affects the way in which we evangelize and the terms that we use. I don't mean fancy pants terms. I mean ways in which we think about how to bring the gospel. Okay?